0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: You're clutching with both hands to this myth of you and I. Our whole brokenness is because of this. You and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I.
2: Hi, I'm Sigal Samuel, co-host of The Way Through. This summer, my colleague Sean Illing and I are taking turns talking to spiritual leaders and philosophers who can help us navigate all the really hard stuff going on. The pandemic, the economic collapse, the racial injustice, all of it. We're hoping these thinkers can help us widen our perspective and maybe even find something meaningful or ennobling in this whole experience. My guest today is Omid Safi, a professor of Islamic studies at Duke University. He specializes in Islamic mystics, or Sufis, like the well-known poet Rumi. Omid comes from an Iranian Muslim family, but he has lived in the American South for many, many years now, and he feels a deep affinity with leaders of the civil rights movement, like Martin Luther King. In fact, he sees certain parallels between their views and Sufi views on love and justice. In this conversation, Omid explains the Sufi tradition of radical love, which involves both love for the divine and for our fellow humans and what it would look like to be guided by that tradition today. What would Rumi do in a pandemic? We also discuss how we might be able to lean into our suffering and isolation, how we can actually use it to our benefit, rather than just trying in vain to escape it. So here's my conversation with Omid Safi. Professor Sufi, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's lovely to have you, and I'm really excited to have you in particular because you're a professor of Islamic studies, and in particular you study mysticism, including the mysticism of Rumi, the famous beloved Sufi poet. Um, and I love these texts so much, so I'm really excited to get to chat with you. And I wonder if we could start by just having you tell me a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? How did you become interested in Sufism, the, the mystical dimension of Islam?
1: Yeah, thank you. And it's a really wonderful joy to, to be with you. I have that um, you know kind of somewhat unique background of both being born in the U.S., which gives me a lot of um, unearned privilege, uh, and also of having grown up overseas. So I was born in Florida, but then my family, um, both my mother and my father, Ali and Puran, are Iranians. And they decided that uh, Iran was a great place to raise children. Uh, So we went to Iran when I was one, and we lived there until I was uh, about 15 years old, at which time we moved back to the United States. Um, So I have the experience of being both a born U.S. citizen and an immigrant. And sort of that double perspective, kind of in some ways, has always mm-hmm. shaped a lot of my outlook. And Iran was a wonderful place. We had lots of family, a very loving, close, tight knit family. And I was surrounded uh, in the way that so much of Persian culture tends to be in this world of music and poetry, and in particular, Sufi poetry, which is really the backbone. Of Persian culture. So, you know, figures like Rumi and Hafez are the anchors of what most Iranians think of as, as their cultural background. And um, my parents uh, instilled a great love for these teachings in us.
2: It's nice that you said, you know, you have both the double perspective of being American-born and immigrant, uh, almost like you're kind of translating between both worlds and you have gone on to translate and, and publish some of the poems of Rumi. Um, so it's sort of, you know, you it sounds like you grew up really having a foot in each world and translating between them. I love that wider perspective that you bring. And that's actually the thread I would like to sort of start with. For me personally, my favorite Sufi is Ibn al-Arabi, 12th century Spanish Sufi, Uh, who I grew up studying with my dad. My dad is a former professor of mysticism. Wow. Uh, It was a very interesting upbringing, let me tell you. Um, (laughs) So I wanted to just open up this conversation for the listener who maybe is not coming from a Muslim background, maybe has not heard Sufi words before, just to give a taste and to say there's something very universal here. There's a universalist spirit which makes these teachings really open to everyone. So everyone, no matter their background, should feel free to kind of come and listen and feel welcomed into the conversation. So I'll read just a short uh, paragraph from Ibn al-Arabi. This is my favorite poem of his. He says, My heart has become capable of every form. It is a pasture for gazelles and a convent for Christian monks and a temple for idols and the pilgrims' kaaba and the tables of the Torah and the book of Quran." I follow the religion of love. Whatever way love's camels take, that is my religion and my faith. So I love that. I love that poem. It's I find it really beautiful. And for me, it picks up on this thread of universalism that I see in Sufism, uh, in the sort of mystical strain of Islam. But I wonder if you were introducing Sufism to someone who's totally new to it, what would you want to tell them about it?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I'm so glad that you shared that particular poem, which is also one of my own favorite ones. Um, When Ibn Arabi says, I follow the religion of love in the scrolls of the Torah and the pilgrims around the Kaaba in the temple, part of what he's doing is that he is going deep into the roots of uh, the Islamic tradition. And there, the word for heart is qalb, which means transformation. And the idea that Ibn Arabi plays with is that it is not the head or reason that can perceive God, but it is rather the heart. And any understanding of the divine has to be perpetually dynamic and in need of transformation. So what some other mystics might call the God ideal should never be frozen, it should never be static. And the minute that it does, it is no longer God, it is an idol. And yes, maybe we can read the Bible and the Quran and other accounts and perhaps um, in a patronizing way, um, shake our heads in disapproval at the people who used to worship gods made out of wood and stone. Ibn Arabi and Rumi and the mystics of Islam are teaching us that most people worship a God that is made out of ideas, that they worship a God not as God the real, but rather the conceived, constructed God of beliefs that they themselves have constructed. Uh, Rumi comes out of a deep tradition that we tend to call the path of radical love. It is way beyond simply having fantastic spiritual experiences, though one will. It is way beyond avoiding pain and torment and perhaps even hellfire, though hopefully that's a nice side effect. And it's beyond the concern for salvation and heaven. It is to be in love with the beloved. It is love the gardener, more than the garden. Um, and I think that tradition of radical love is not something for the museums. This is the living tradition that continues right down to our own age.
2: It sounds like there is just this real desire to become one with God, to be so close with God that you're almost indistinguishable. And I think we'll come back to these ideas a bit later of union with God, of the desire to avoid suffering, I want to, for now, bring us right down to earth, right into the present moment, and concretize all this a little bit. I like to do these sorts of thought experiments. I like to think about historical figures and try to imagine what they would do today if they were in my situation. So will you indulge me in a little thought experiment? Since you, you focus on Rumi. So let's imagine, if Rumi were alive today in the US in 2020 living through the pandemic and everything that we're living through, what do you think he would be doing, right? This maybe will give us a little bit of a sense of how these mystical ideas can be put in practice. Would he be engaging in petitionary prayer, asking God to stop the virus? Would he be out in the street delivering supplies to people? Would he be social distancing? Would he wear a mask?
1: Well, um, I'm I'm fairly certain that if he were to be in public, that he would be wearing a mask. Uh, First of all, it's just, it's cruel and selfish to not wear a mask when you're in public. And uh, it's not just for your own sake, it's also for the sake of everybody else. So let's just get that one out of the way. Um, Look, um, we sometimes tend to have this dichotomy that we like to create. Would he be doing prayer or would he be out on the street? Yes. Both and all the above. When, where is it ever said that the life of the spirit and the life of bodies have to be divorced from one another? Um, You know, the God that is the subject of one's petitions is the sustainer of our bodies, hearts, and souls. And if you love the folk, you care for the folk. Uh, What sets the path of radical love apart, I think, from so many other traditions, is the very notion that if you claim to love God, you have to love God's creation. You cannot claim to be indifferent to the suffering of humanity and indeed other sentient beings if you claim to be on this path, on this journey. So the question of suffering, I think, is one of the most important ones. We are so uncomfortable with our own pain, with our own suffering. We don't know how to deal with our own pain. And as a result, sometimes our hearts become hardened and calloused when we hear the cry of another person or another community. And then we um, go right into all the defense mechanisms that we have. And of course you see this nowadays, you have whole communities of color, black communities in particular, who are on the street picking up on the cry of Eric Garner and George Floyd talking about how we can't breathe. And you have people responding to that by saying, I don't particularly like the anger in your voice when you're telling us Mm -hmm. that you can't breathe. Could you say it, but say it again a little bit nicer? Could you say it in a way that makes me feel a little bit less antagonized, right? Um, And these are all the signs of callousness in our heart. We are, in those instances, not unable but unwilling to confront suffering. The path of love Sufis would have been not talking at the people, who are hurting and vulnerable, but standing in their midst. I think that's what the message of Rumi and all these mystics would be today. To identify suffering, to stand with those who are hurting and vulnerable, love starts from there. Um, This is not a very (laughs) popular thing to say. God does have a preferential treatment. But it is not for a religion. It is not for a nation. It is not for a race or ethnicity or a gender. It's for the poor. That God is on the side of the weak and the vulnerable.
2: And I think in the context of the current pandemic, what we see is that this pandemic is disproportionately taking Black lives, people who are low income, people who are experiencing homelessness. So it would seem like, you know, these are... The people that an an ethic of love would demand that we really do our utmost to protect. If that means wearing a piece of cloth over your mouth when you go outside, you know, that's a very small sacrifice to make, presumably, for achieving that.
1: Somehow, among all the countries of the earth, we seem to be almost uniquely unable to rise to this challenge, not because we lack the resources or we lack the funds or the expertise, Um, I wonder if we lack the care and the love.
2: You know, that reminds me of a really stark contrast that I see between a strand that you find in Sufi thought and a very prominent strand in American thought. In Sufism, just like in the mystical traditions of a lot of other faiths, Buddhism, Judaism, many others, we see a real emphasis on selflessness and I don't just mean by that, oh, you're being generous. I mean something much more radical, total ego annihilation, right? Getting rid of your notion that you have a bounded self that is separate from others, separate from God. Uh, in Sufism, we have this idea of al fana right? Becoming completely absorbed in God. Uh, to me, this seems like the polar opposite of American individualism. I think we're in a country that has a very strong libertarian streak where we're almost obsessed with individual liberties. And I wonder if you think that this emphasis on our personal freedom, personal autonomy actually is getting in the way of expressing solidarity with one another during a pandemic, which is really a situation that demands a more collectivist mindset. Yeah,
1: that's a wonderful question. I I do think that something about, you know, this um, rugged individualism is certainly um, both real and also, at times, slightly over-exaggerated. I mean, after all, we are the very people who, whose, whose founding document starts with, we, the people. It doesn't start with, I, the person. It's, we, the people. There's that notion of the peoplehood, the we-ness, the us-ness which is so fundamental. I always, you know, I was um, very blessed in my life to have been loved and mentored by the close friend of Dr. King's, um, Uncle Vincent, Vincent Harding. And uh, he would always take me back to that document and remind me that what that document says is we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. And he's, he would always pause and say, Thank God it never said in order to form a perfect union, because we were not perfect when we committed genocide against indigenous people. We were not perfect during the years of transatlantic slavery and Jim Crow. We are not perfect now, but the goal is to become just a little bit more perfect today than we were yesterday and to move towards the direction of shaping that perfect union tomorrow compared to today. And how do we do it? Establish justice. And of course, you know, justice is never individual. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why we call it social justice. It's justice out in society. It's not, I want to get what I can for me.
2: I hear you talking about two notions. There's the notion of love and there's the notion of justice that you brought up. Yeah. And I'm curious how you think and how Sufi thinkers would say these two notions interrelate.
1: Well, you're you're very astute at picking that up except they're not two notions. There's one notion. Um and the way that the Sufis talk about it, it was very, it was almost fell out of my chair the first time that I heard Uncle Vincent, Vincent Harding, expressed this because you know, here was this 80-year-old black Christian uh, elder of the civil rights movement, and it was as if he was reading something out of a Sufi text. Um, just as there is one love and that the love of God has to flow into love of humanity, that same one love, when it's unleashed onto this world, right, the Sufis say, Um, That love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It is the very being of God unleashed onto this realm. It is love that brought you here. It is love that sustains you here. And if you can just get over your ego and merge into this cosmic current of love, that same love is going to deliver you back home. So it's helpful to think of this love as an oceanic, wave that pours through you. And when it pours out of your heart, out into the public square, mm-hmm. we recognize it as justice, right? So you hear Cornell West say this, you hear Vincent Harding and Dr. King say this, Ella Baker and the Student for Nonviolent Coordinating Committee members all said this during the civil rights era, all that we mean by justice is love when it comes into the public square.
2: I love that you're pointing out that love and justice are not actually two separate things, but are kind of part of one wave. There is this roomy quote that I read in a Coleman-Bark's translation. I'll caveat that by saying Coleman-Bark's translations are perhaps more interpretations. He takes a lot of liberties with the text, but with that caveat, There is this one part uh, where Rumi says, what sort of person says that he or she wants to be polished and pure, and then complains about being handled roughly? Love is a lawsuit where harsh evidence must be brought in. To settle the case, the judge must see evidence. I find there's an interesting relationship there between love and justice, right? Love for your fellow people isn't just saying to them, yeah, whatever you're doing, it's great. You know, universalism means like total relativism. If you don't want to be kind to others or if you want to be racist or whatever, that's totally fine. There is this element of judgment. There is this element of criticizing when you see something that you think is wrong or is going to harm other people. And being willing to criticize when you see that is, is part of justice, but that's not separate from love.
0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
2: Let's talk about the massive pain and suffering that a lot of people are experiencing right now during this pandemic. I think a lot of religious leaders and spiritual leaders are responding by trying to offer comfort that aim is to ease the suffering. But there's also this really rich tradition in a lot of religions and spiritualities about suffering actually being ennobling if you harness it correctly. This idea that pain can actually lead to good things or good internal development sometimes. And I see a lot of this attitude in Sufism. Rumi in particular has, I mean, just I tried to pull out one quote, but there were 5 million, so I kind of gave up because it's everywhere, right? Uh, He says, you know, brother, to be a lover, you must have pain. Where is your pain? Elsewhere, he just says, seek pain, pain, pain. Increase your need, right? He's always calling upon us to increase our pain, our suffering in some sense. So how would you invite us to think about this in relation to the suffering in the pandemic? You know, some kinds of suffering seem like they're useful, some maybe not so useful.
1: That's a great question. So, I mean, I think here's again a part of where each of us have to be true to um, our own traditions. And uh, I'm, I'm a Muslim boy. Uh, I'm a Muslim boy of Iran and the South um, who is politically most at home in the black church (laughs) Um, and spiritually most at home in Rumi. Um, And if some people find that contradictory, that's really their problem, not mine, you know? I am not a Christian. So when I listen to Martin, whom I love and I'm moved by and inspired by, and I hear him talk about redemptive suffering the willingness to bear suffering and to pick up your own cross and that if we can do so with dignity then nothing shall be more redemptive and transformative i don't know about that because that tradition of redemptive suffering isn't mine Mm. right and i want to be true to how my life of faith and my life of politics is too limiting of a word, but my life of being a citizen of a human mingled together. I also, being somebody who was pre-med in a previous life and I spent um, so many years volunteering in cancer wards, pediatric cancer wards, one of the questions that I always think about when I hear those kinds of Rumi quotes, was when you read Rumi talking about pain or you hear Martin talking about redemptive suffering, I put myself back in that situation of one of those young mothers at the hospital holding her six-month-old infant and imagining what I would say to them. Would I go to them and say, uh, I know you're enduring pain. I know your baby's enduring pain. I want you to know that this pain is redemptive. That if you knew how, as Rumi at times says, if you knew how precious this pain was, you would plead for it with God, beg for it. No, I wouldn't. And I don't think any kind and tender human being would. When you witness pain, sometimes the way of bearing witness is to actually be silent. Now, what do I do with those traditions of Rumi talking about pain? To begin with, I don't think we have to go looking for pain. There's already pain in this world. There's already suffering in this world. Rumi begins his whole collection of poetry talking about the suffering that comes from all the different types of separations. For some people, especially nowadays, you might be separated from your loved ones that you don't get to see. Um, I haven't gotten to embrace my mama and my baba for six months now. You might be separated from a place that feels like home, either your birthplace or the place that spiritually and aesthetically you feel most at home. You might be separated from your own dreams that you thought you were going to be somebody and life hasn't quite worked out that way. And so there's pain in that. But then Rumi goes on to say, every heart breaks, but not every heart breaks open. And there's a difference between a heart that merely breaks and a heart that breaks open.
2: So first of all, thank you so much for saying that when someone is in a cancer ward or suffering Mm -hmm. terribly due to a pandemic-induced death or whatever it is, we don't go up and say to them, hey, everything happens for a reason. This is terrific. You're so lucky that your loved one is dying, right? That's no, right? I, I would feel terrible if someone said that to me. I guess what I'm left wondering is, how do we work with pain and heartbreak so that we become the person who, as a result, we we break open and don't just break, right? How can we hold the suffering of the pandemic in a way that could actually be ennobling or we could actually turn it into something meaningful or useful? Does Sufi tradition have any... Pointers as to how we might do that.
1: Yeah, Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to this notion of the idolatry of the finite ego. Um, You know, so many of us, if we just look at our own body, we think that we end at the edge of our fingertips, or if I had hair, at the tip of my (laughs) hair, right? Um, But Instead, you know, we, you are a, a fluid being. Your, your soul uh, is extending and already enmeshed with other people. That same finite ego has a tendency to think that it is the master of the universe, that you write your own destiny and that it's only a matter of figuring out the best choices for you here and there. And so much of the pain that we have is that realization that our ability is finite, that we were unable to prevent pain for ourselves or for people that we love and we care about. If instead we didn't see ourselves as one bounded self moving through and perhaps bumping up against other finite self, but really saw one life, one soul one yearning one living one love then the pain and the suffering that we might witness in somebody else and our own pain and suffering would resonate with one another and i think that's at least a key to a heart that breaks open egotistical pain always turns back on itself right Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you going on about your pain and your community's pain. What about my pain? Like, you know, your knee, my back.
2: You know, my first gut reaction when you were saying this was, no, this sounds horrible because, you know, you're saying, okay, maybe a key to dealing with the suffering is to actually feel how I don't have this bounded ego, this separate self. I'm actually this thing that merges with all other beings. And so I share in everyone else's suffering. My first reaction is, oh my God, that sounds horribly overwhelming and terrible because that multiplies my suffering a millionfold. But then my second response internally when you said that was, okay, maybe that would help me feel a sense of connection with all of these other beings and there might be something in feeling connected with that larger stream of consciousness or being that actually is soothing because it makes us feel that we're not alone. I think a big part of what is so painful when we're suffering these days is that it it has this isolating element to it. We feel alone in it. And there's something maybe soothing and psychologically calming and healing about feeling like we're united with everyone else, even if the mode that we're united with them in is a mode of suffering.
1: Exactly. So, you know, Rumi has this wonderful line that I translated in uh, my book, Radical Love. Um, You're clutching with both hands to this myth of you and I. Our whole brokenness is because of this. And part of this does go back to that notion of individuality and individualism that we were talking about a little bit Mm -hmm. ago. And you're right. Some parts of this are woven into certain strands of Western thought. The reason that you see me being a little skeptical is, well, you know, if we were so insistent on our individuality and individualism, why are you on your phone the whole time? Why are you texting and tweeting and Instagramming and Facebook? Because you crave connection. Well, okay. That connection is an indication of the fact that you're never meant to be an island. You're meant to be in communion with other being. Um, And there's this wonderful Rumi poem. I don't have a favorite Rumi poem, but but this one is is up there. Um, You and I should live as if you and I never heard of a you and an I.
2: I think that really speaks to, you know, this idea in Sufi thought of getting rid of the notion of the bounded separate ego and how we're all we already always are in connection with each other and it is making me think a lot about our current situation where as you mentioned during the pandemic a lot of us are just in physical isolation unable to hug the people we love and you know go to the the places where we feel at home i find that in the west definitely i see this a lot I see in us a lot of fear of isolation. I think a lot of us are so scared of being alone. There was a scientific study done a few years ago where they gave people the choice between being alone with their own thoughts for 15 minutes or getting electric shocks, getting mild electrocution. And a lot of people chose the electric shocks, right? That is how horrified we in the US are of being alone. The Sufi tradition has a lot to say about the benefits of isolation, of halwa. There's this idea that it can allow you to focus on meditation, on spiritual development. And this goes all the way back to the Quran and the Bible, right? You see Muhammad and Moses going for 40 days to the mountain to commune with God, and then they get their big revelations. Is there some way in which we can use this pandemic to not run away from our isolation and in a panic mode, constantly be trying to text someone or tweet or you know communicate with someone, but instead to lean into that solitude and somehow use it to our advantage.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, insight, and um, you're right that uh, even when you think about how messy our language is, um, and if you talk about being alone but no one wants to be alone. (laughs) But if you talk about solitude, right? uh, Some people would say, oh, that sounds very nice. And this is, again, one of the reminders that we're not all on the same boat when it comes to the pandemic, that for many people there is um, a very crushing economic hardship that has come, the loss of jobs, the loss of um, portions of their job, the... um, inability to move around kind of freely. We're talking about economic hardship and medical hardship. Um, And we're also not all in the same boat when it comes to some of us who are extroverts and some of us who are introverts. Um, And we all have aspects of those in us. None of us are 100% this and 100% that. Uh, You know, I have the great fortune of being married to someone who is much more on the introvert side. (laughs) And she was like, You mean, we get to stay inside and spend time in the garden and go for (laughs) one-on-one walks and read books and listen to podcasts and play sacred music. Um, It would be okay if this lingered, you know, for a few years.
2: She's living her best life. Yeah.
1: I mean, this is like, you know, not to have to have small talk, which is just painful, painful, painful. And she would much rather just politely bow out of the conversation and go to that blissful solitude. Um, and whereas, you know, for me, I'm somebody who tends to get a lot of my energy by interacting with people. And I get charged up by having a heart-to-heart conversation. Not the chit-chat, but the heart-to-heart part. Um, my hope is that this unplanned, perhaps unwanted period of a retreat can give us an opportunity to examine our own life, to think about what is it that we've been prioritizing, what has been feeding our hearts and our souls. Um, So, you know, every one of us has some signs of the ego. Um, My wife and I were laughing about this a couple of days ago. One of my own ego attachments is, I love cars. Yeah. It's like the 12-year-old boy in me that has never entirely grown up. And I love a little, you know, convertible. Well, <laughs> what's the point of having a convertible if you can't go anywhere? Or if you're not going somewhere as often? It just seems utterly wasteful. You know what I would really love? To see my mama. I yeah. would love to see my baba. Um, and when you think about Moses and Jesus and Muhammad and the Buddha and Rumi, and Ibn Arabi, all of whom did this practice of halwa, of moving like a wave to a cave or to a mountaintop or to the inward. This wasn't a permanent calling. It wasn't that you would move to a cave. You would go inside to be alone with the one. And then like that wave, you would come back to the ocean and bring the fruits of that back into society. I think that's the part that I would love to see us as a community, as a world community, do this now. And the invitation that I find is helpful for people to do at this point is examine your life and see what is really feeding your soul. You know, so many of us who are attached to our phone devices, um, We start to get really panicky when the battery light on them comes on because it means you only have 20% left, right? And then you like nervously start looking around. Where's my cord? Where's my (laughs) charger? Where's the outlet? And if you, in those days where you could fly, if you're in an airport, you try to find with utter futility, the one outlet that is still (laughs) working. Even if it's like, you know, right near the bathroom on the floor, you will sit there so that you can recharge.
2: I have been that person on the floor near the bathroom. We've all been that person. And (laughs) by the way, what do airlines
1: have against just putting a hundred of these things (laughs) like in normal human places? Well, what if your heart had a red battery light? Would we even know where to go to recharge? And that's going to look different for every person. For some of us, it might look like reading Rumi poetry listening to a a great podcast, sitting with your mama, embrace of a friend, making love to your partner, going for a walk in the woods, gardening, putting your feet in a cold stream, listening to the chirping of the birds in the morning, or going for a hike up on the mountains, prayer or yoga. I actually don't particularly care what that practice is that rejuvenates your soul. But I think it is really important to be asking ourselves, do we know what it is? And do we know how to locate it? And do we know how to return to it again and again and again until it becomes a practice?
2: Yes. I think that particularly in the West, we are generally in the before times, so busy with work, with status tracing, with a lot of these things that distract us from our internal world. Um, and that, or even just for income reasons, make it really hard for us to have time to look at that internal world and find things that will kind of recharge us on a deeper level. Um, so in one way, like you said, I hope that this pandemic can give, can give some of us, I think it will be the privileged among us, really, who can afford it, uh, you know, the time to use this isolation as a moment where we can look inward and and reevaluate, you know, am I actually living in tune with my values? Are there some things I would want to change even when the pandemic is over? So there is that period of khalwa of retreat. But I like that you pointed out there is this really dialectical relationship uh, in Sufi thought between khalwa and jalwa, Right. Retreating into yourself. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah,
2: and going out back into society. Ibn al-Arbi, since he is my favorite, I will read a quote from him. He says: For him whom God has given understanding, retreat and society, khalwa and jalwa, are the same. Mm -hmm. In fact, it may be that society is more complete for a person and greater in benefit, since through it, at every instant, one increases in knowledge of God. Right, So is there is this notion of you want to retreat, you want to have this, this period of isolation where you're looking inward, but that's not the end goal in itself. You don't want to just stay there forever. You want to then ultimately use the wisdom you've gained and the introspection you've gained in that period of solitude to then go back out to other people and be able to see the divine in them and be able to interact with them in a better way.
1: That's exactly right. And, and I think, you know, this notion of a halwa and a retreat is terrifying to so many people. Yeah. Because, um, you know, who knows what you're going to find if you start looking into those unexamined corners of your own soul? What if you don't like what you see? You know, there's a there's a great psychologist that has a quote, it takes more courage for a person to examine the dark corners of their own soul than it does for a soldier to ride naked onto a battlefield. And, and I love how vivid that sort of is, you know? <laughs> you know, in general, I'm not... Um, I'm not a Jungian uh, psychologist. Um, I don't tend to sort of get all excited about the talk of shadows and the shadowy places. I, you know, I'm a sort of love and light person. Um, but I have found that oftentimes we all carry these wounds. We carry this pain inside of us. And um, just because you're not looking at it, it doesn't mean that it's healing. So sometimes I think it can be very helpful, but it's not just wounds that you have in that unexamined portion of your own soul. There's also wonder and beauty and the presence of the one, whatever name you want to give to her or to him.
2: Forgive me because I'm going to take you now into a shadowy place. I just, I can't let you go from this conversation during a pandemic without talking about What I think is the undercurrent running through so much of our anxiety these days, which is fear of death, fear of our own Mm -hmm. mortality, which we're not very good at talking about, I think, as Americans. We really brush it aside as much as we possibly can. But for Sufis, death is not something to be feared, right? It's something they say we should celebrate like a wedding, like a wedding anniversary. Can you explain why that is and... How we can possibly move toward that view, because I find that very hard to imagine the death of the people I love most and not just be totally fearful.
1: That's right. That's right. And it's one thing if you can somehow see the mystical insight about your own life. But it's another thing if you start to think about the life of the ones that you love the most in this world. So I want to also be um I want to also be sensitive towards that. Um, so I think on one hand, you know, yeah, look, if we um, look at the only existence that there is being the life of this world and that the you and the i is tied to these finite beings and that when this finite being dissipates, um, Cornell West, whom I love so, so much and uh, I, I weep, Sometimes when he's talking, he talks about when my body becomes the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. I'm like, thank you for that image, which now is like embedded inside of my soul. But what if instead you come to realize, as the Sufis did, um, there's this wonderful saying, Ibn Allah, a North African Sufi. uh, I think this is saying number 37 or 38 or something in his collection. Um, in the beginning was God and there was none with him. In the end, there will be God and there will be none with him. And then this is the part that just goes, close your mind. And it is now as it shall be then. Right? What if in this very breath, Yes, you exist, and I exist, and all of the listeners exist, and the multitude, the manyness of existence are like the drops of an ocean, and the ocean is always there, even if the waves come in and the waves go back out, and even if the water evaporates and falls back on the ocean as rain, it's still the ocean. So if I can sort of come back to that notion of what if the ending of the earthly cycle is not an end, but it is the lifting of the veil so that you come to see yourself as always having been inside the divine presence. Um, if I can again, go back to Rumi, you know, he he talks at one point about you spend your whole life knocking and knocking and knocking at God's door, wondering when it will open. My friend, you're knocking from the inside. You're already inside the divine presence and you're knocking, waiting for the door to open. Um, this world, this here and now, you're already bathed in God. There is no place outside of God to go because nothing exists outside of God. But coming back to that much more vulnerable place that I think you're trying to have us go to, you're right. There is a sense of fear that is woven into so many of our experiences of death, not so much about what will happen to me, but what will happen to my loved ones who will provide for my loved ones. This is why we need a basic guarantee of income and and universal uh, healthcare, by the way. (laughs) It would alleviate some of that pain and some of that anxiety. But what if we came to think about not so much the duration of life, but the quality of our living? Um, I was freaked out recently to realize that my 12-year-old baby girl who is someone that I love as much as I have ever loved anyone on this earth, has a bucket list, bucket list for a 12-year-old, <laughs> right? And I was contrasting that to a conversation that I had with my baba, with my father. Um, and I was, when he turned 80, and uh, may God give him a long life and may the years be filled with joy, heavenly. Um, I asked him, Baba, for your 80th birthday, what would you like to have done? And he said, nothing. And I said, oh, well, well, I mean, you're turning 80 and this is a big deal. And and he said, "Um, Omichan, God has already given me the most wonderful companion for life that I've been married to for 50 years. I have four great children. I have wonderful grandchildren. I've spent a life in service to humanity. I've tried never to harm anyone. There is nothing that I would wait for. There's nothing on a bucket list that I have because there's pure gratefulness. I think to live in that sense of gratefulness would certainly, at least for me, remove a lot of the fear that is almost all-encompassing Uh, in this moment of pandemic.
2: I do think it's true what you said about, at least for me, I find it way easier to come to some okayness with the idea of my own death, but the idea of my family members dying is totally overwhelming to me. Um, There is a a poem that I love. Uh, This is in Rumi and the Colin Barks translation that I'll just read a little part of it. It's called the sheikh who lost two sons. Mm. A great sheikh has lost two sons, yet he is not weeping. His family and his wife wonder at this lack of grief. Do not think that I am cold and uncompassionate. I don't weep because for me, they are not gone. The eye of my heart sees them distinctly. They're outside of time, but very close by here, playing and coming to hug me. As people sometimes see dead relatives in dream, I see my sons constantly in this waking state. I am even more deeply with them when I hide for a moment from the world, when I let the sense perception leaves drop from the tree of my being. Some attend to individual mercies and some to universal grace. Try to let them merge. Pond water eventually arrives at the ocean. One saint works and lingers in the lakes of personal life. Another plays without limits in the sea. So again, we have that water imagery you talked about where it seems to be offering the speaker of the poem some comfort to imagine, yes, we as individuals, we are individual drops of water, but we merge back into this bigger sea. That's an idea that when I was younger, I really hated because I don't like the idea of my loved ones losing their particularity and after death being unable to advise me and speak to me with that particularity of their unique themness. But as I get older, I find myself a little bit more liking that idea, actually, because it can mean that this sort of condensation, they, I almost imagine them becoming a mist that permeates my whole world. And then they're not just localized in one particular body, in one particular city, but they can kind of be everywhere uh, around me like this kind of watery mist. Um, and that is comforting.
1: Every cell in your body is is being changed, so are your memories, so are your thoughts, so are your emotions. So our whole being is always undergoing this transformation anyway. Death is perhaps just a slightly more dramatic version.
2: <laughs> right, right. I like the idea of transformation, just reframing death as transformation. You know, Rumi says, what is a miserable seed when spring comes that its seedness should not be annihilated for the sake of a tree? That's I like right. that image, right? That's um, really
1: powerful. That's yeah. really powerful. And, you know, he he says, um, everything that you put in the soil grows. Why are you so afraid of when you're going to put me in the soil?
2: Yeah. It's a point of view that I aspire to to hold in my mind. I definitely do not always manage to have that point of view. Yeah, um, well, I'll try.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm very, I'm mindful of your time and that we've been with you a while Um May I ask you one last question, if you have a moment? By all means. Okay. Just thinking of that wider perspective, what happens if we look at the pandemic from the point of view of being, capital B, from a 30,000-foot view? When we take this wider perspective, is all the death and suffering due to this pandemic at some level meaningless? Or is each individual, one of us, extremely precious still, or is it somehow both at the same time? What would your favorite Sufis say to that?
1: I I don't know of any favorite Sufi who would ever um, say that, you know, from the 30,000 feet point in the air, um, that all of this is meaningless. And I don't know of a God, and I surely don't worship a God for whom... Suffering and birth and death and joy and tears are meaningless. Um, The God that I know is a both and, yes to all the above God, Um, yes the transcendent majestic Lord of the infinite cosmoses and universes of the seen and unseen, and of the God who mingles in the giggles of a child and the opening up of a blossom. And the chirping of a bird and the silence in the solitude. Um, So I would hope to hang on to this notion that the suffering and the hope and the realization that we can bring into this moment um, is deeply precious and dear to that one.
2: Thank you so much. Um, That was beautifully put. I really appreciate all that you've shared with us. I found it very helpful for me personally. I hope our listeners will too. And if you want to tell our listeners, if they would like to find you more of your work, where can they find you?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, It's quite easy to find some of these teachings. Um, So if they enjoy um, listening to things or perhaps even watching them, uh, I've set up an online platform that's called Illuminated Courses. Um, they can just go to www.illuminatedcourses.com. The first one is on Rumi and then the second one is on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Um, And if they enjoy reading, then there's a book that I have of Rumi poetry as well as the teachings of some of these other Sufi sages called Radical Love.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Omid. I hope the listeners check those out and it was a pleasure for me to talk to you. I appreciate it. Listeners, thanks so much for joining us. If you liked today's episode, make sure to catch the next ones by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please share this with your friends and family. If you have feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me a message on Twitter at Sigal Samuel. Our producer is Jackson Bierfeld. The show is edited by Albert Ventura. Our executive producer is Liz Nelson. And this show is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Visit vox.com slash podcasts to find more of our shows.